This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back. This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And I'm Cheryl Coolman. And I'm Nick Ashburn. And we're joined by our... our our current producer, current producer, next, our few, next few hours, producer. next few hours, for, for another hour, uh, Matt Johnson. He will be uh, leaving our serious show to become a uh, MBA student at Wharton so to learn how to do business we've and social talked impact about for the last several years. He's he's been uh, he drank the Kool Aid as a That's result right. of listening to all the shows and hearing all our great guests. I said that in an interview once. I said, "Oh, I drank the Kool Aid." I was like, "That was probably not the best phrase." <laughs> to well, say, you know, but. so Matt also Matt was also an intern for Doctor Radio, or were you a producer on Doctor Radio? I was. Uh, I started off as an intern for Doctor Radio, and so I mean, he could have gone the med school route, but he could have. But see, we were influential. That's exactly. right. I I was pre med, and I. Said, said, no, you know what, this is not not for me. <laughs> well, talk about being influential. Our next guest is Peter Georgescu, who's the chairman emeritus of Young and Rubicon, and now he's the author of Capitalist to Rise, End Economic Inequality, Grow the Middle Class, Heal the Nation. I have my fist in the air. <laughs> Peter, welcome to the show, and thank you for that, that charge. Okay, good morning to you. Good morning. A very good morning to everybody, and uh, I'm delighted that Matthew's now... Um, uh, drinking more Kool-Aid. <laughs> so are we. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things, Peter, that that um, is really interesting about um, your book, and I think fits resonance with us so well, is that we do really think that the private sector has a really important role to play in some of these real challenges. I mean, these are the kinds of things that have often been left to governments or policy or social work. But businesses now understanding that there's a role to play, and, and I think they're they're tanking it on. But you're also trying to rally them more. So talk about what inspired you to write this book, besides our show. Uh, <laughs> well, I always dreamt of being on your show. That's absolutely a fact. So now, I, now, now I've arrived. We make dreams come true that, that's, here. That, that's, our, that's our slogan. That's our slogan. <laughs> I, I think there are two, there are two reasons, um, well, several reasons, in fact, that uh, are important. But I want to hook to on to what you've just said, uh, Cheryl, because, uh, you know, there's a misunderstanding, a huge misunderstanding here about the role of business in inequality, in our economy, in our well-being. Everybody, as you suggested, looks to government to fix our problems, except that the only, underline the only institution in America that can produce wealth is business, not government. Government can foster it, can support it, but they don't do it. Only business produces wealth. So I think we need to sort of put on different set of glasses when we look at uh, the role that business has played and must play in the future to help uh, revive our economy and to help begin to address the issue of inequality. So that's, that's, I think, is a very important point for all of us to understand. And uh, sometimes we love business to death the way it is, warts and all, and maybe the warts are getting too big and <laughs> yeah. we need to fix them. Other people, particularly from the left, are saying business is horrific, terrible, let's do away with them, and then what? And Peter, so, <laughs> Peter, this is Nick. You have been, you know, you've been, you were the CEO of one of the largest communications and ad firms uh, in the world. And so, I mean, you've been at the top of the private sector. 
Where did you start seeing issues that you said, gosh, guys, you know, to my peers, we need to be thinking about this differently? Well, I wish I can tell you, I, I have I've left Young Ruby Camp some years ago. So it wasn't then. Uh, at that point in time, things were doing pretty well and confined to my company and our competitor, but certainly our company, Young Ruby Camp. Uh, we didn't have the kinds of issues that many other companies began to have 40 years ago. We paid people pretty well because in the marketing and communication business and the service business, it was pretty well understood that the greatest asset, in fact, the only serious asset we had were the people. And we had some 15,000 professionals around the world. And so (laughs) we knew pretty well uh, what it took to be successful in the business. So we took care of our people. Uh, and, and in general, at that point in time, the economy was masking the creation of all these other people. But I did have an advantage. Uh, the advantage was that being in the consumer business, I began to understand and see the development of the other America. And as women began to move into the workforce, we were very interested in that phenomenon. Yes, it was an issue of uh, liberation of a gender equality issue beginning beginning to take a more forceful role in the economy, but it wasn't driven by that. It was driven by pure economics, mm-hmm. that there, weren't enough, there wasn't enough income for the families to really have a reasonably decent standard of living. And that's what drove, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of women to join the workforce. So that's when I began to understand that we're beginning to have a problem. And then the deeper I dug, uh, the more serious the problem became. In the last, let's say, four or so years, that concern turned into fear. Mm. Because what's going on today is unsustainable, and it could have really serious catastrophic consequences for society and certainly for everybody's well-being. And so the path or the progression that you're seeing is then from not being able to support a family on one income, the the husband's income. So the wife's women join the workforce because now you need more, you need both members of the family working to make that happen, to a state now where even with both people working, they're still often unable to have the, the sort of requisite income necessary well, that's exactly right. Let me, let me try to define, and this is what has been <clears throat> strange about this conversation uh, of inequality, because nobody seemed to be able to define, so what is it? <laughs> and that was the number one challenge I had as I began to seriously consider uh, getting more deeply involved in possibly writing a book about it about two or three years ago. And... I was wrestling with the notion that people said, well, if you're below $30,000 in income, you're into poverty land. But still, if you even if you want, uh, earn as much as $70,000, you may have a problem. Uh, none of those kind of variations or the mean is about, I don't know, uh, $52,000, $53,000 and the average around there. And, and so what do those numbers mean? So I had an epiphany once. And, and that really got things going for me. And that is, I thought, 
let's not look at individuals, but let's look at a home. This is what I did, I did in business. Uh, we did a lot of research on homes. We did ethnographic studies, living with people in homes to understand what's going on. Catherine Klein, our co-host in Vicene, would say that's your level of analysis. Yeah. Well, this is this was the key. Because what I wanted to do, uh, interestingly, was to, 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 to look at the kitty. I said to myself, the kitty of the home. Take all the income on one side, and I mean all the income. Uh, Babysitting what, money? Uh, well, everything. Wages, salaries, dividends, um, on the lower end, uh, uh, food stamps, uh, unemployment insurance, support from governments, local, federal, etc. everything. The so-called transfer benefits. And interestingly, just as an aside, a few years ago, I was in a conference with a bunch of CEOs. They said, well, if you take all the transfer, transfer benefits and put them on, there's no inequality in America. Well, well that's just not the case. <laughs> so you take all the income on one side, take the taxes and every other single household expense on the other side, what's left in the kitty? That's what I wanted to understand that, and I said, maybe that will give us an insight. And it did. What really happens is that about 60% of American homes, close to 60% of American homes, have to borrow money to put food on the table. That's a staggering, staggering statistic, but it's a fact. And, you know, it means really that most of American homes, the vast majority of American homes, are insolvent. And, and, and that's, a, that's a travesty. So that defines inequality for me. When income inequality produces those kinds of results, which, as it turns out, have had humongous socioeconomic consequences for the communities and the zip codes in which these people live. So this is giving us, I think, a good sense of how you're understanding the problem. And it's in some ways, it's simple math. The income coming in isn't enough to meet all the expenses going out, right. right? And so that's where you define it. What is, what, what are the capitalists supposed to do? How are, how are the businesses well, going to let address me, this? Let me just tell you, before we jump very quickly to that, let me, let me define the problem a little bit more in just one more little detail. Sure. Because if we understand the problem in, in the seriousness of the problem in depth, uh, then the solution becomes pretty evident. And here's the other thing that I found. If you take, so, so 60% have to borrow money to put food on the table. So therefore, we don't have a viable middle class in America. Economically, they are not viable to GDP growth. Okay? Take the upper middle class then, the next 20%. So we're now close to 80% of America. That next 20%, your upper middle class, at the end of the year, what's left in the kitty is 8500 dollars. So one, one tough winter with leaky roof or whatever, and you get to where Joe Stiglitz said that four out of five Americans living today will experience some form of poverty in their lifetime. That's 80% of America. And last year, Janet Yellen said that a $400 um, unplanned expense right cannot be met by the vast majority of Americans. Mm -hmm. So all of this data triangulates. 
Now, the, so what I'm trying to say is that the problem is humongous, and 20% of us are doing capitalists <laughs> on balance are doing just fine. Life is as good as it gets. But that's the problem, and that's, that's when, when the disparity between a reasonably large segment of the population and the vast majority of the country gets to be that large and creates problem in society like education and homes, et cetera, we might get into. But that's, that's the depth of that problem, and that's where I tr- transfer from concern to fear. And you're listening to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And we're talking to Peter Georgescu, who's the chairman emeritus of Young and Rubicon, and the author of Capitalist to Rise and Economic Inequality, Grow the Middle Class, Heal the Nation. And Peter, when, when your book opened up, you start with this conversation with uh, Ken Langone. And for those who don't know, Ken is the uh, founder of Home Depot. I know him because he was uh, also Langone Medical Center, which is where Dr. Radio, where I interned. <laughs> yeah. but, <laughs> so that's how, that's how I know the name. But um, you know, I'm curious, when you were talking with these different individuals and in creating this book, how did your perception of inequality change? Well, uh, the, perception, the perception of inequality didn't change. What what was became obvious is all these uh, really interesting, committed uh, capitalists, uh, people who have done so extraordinarily well, people who've come from nothing, uh, like Ken did. Mm-hmm. You know, he's uh, he grew up. His parents uh, barely finished high school. I think only one of the parents finished high school, not college. And he's a self-made man, and he's a multi-billionaire today. And this man is as passionate about income inequality as I am, as any or most really thoughtful people who understand the problem. And he will say, this is a problem that must be solved. And so I was, in fact, reassured and, in fact, motivated, highly motivated to say, we've got to do something. And Ken, I just got a note from Ken and saying, Peter, we've got to redouble the effort this issue must be solved now. That's a note that I got from Ken yesterday. Wow. So I'm, 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 I'm really encouraged by this kind of sentiment. But here's the issue. The issue then is to say, okay, these guys who have been, even though he's a founder, he's not running the company. The issue then is to get really to come down from 30,000 feet into the, in the weeds of what is happening today um, to the folks who are running the businesses, to the current CEOs, not the emeritized CEO like myself, but to the folks in charge of managing a business today. And they're having a pretty tough time. People criticize them a lot. They make too much money. They do this and that. I mean, frankly, that's true. But they also have a very difficult situation. Well, so Peter... All right. So I could say 60% of households are borrowing for their basic needs. Is it because they are buying too many lattes? Is it because millennials are buying too much avocado toast? <laughs> I mean, what what are the real contributing factors no, 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 to to yeah. this to well, this area? See, yeah, that's a, you see, this is an important question because at the end of the day, uh, it's it's not the uh, the millennials buying an avocado toast. Although, by the way, I must confess, I love it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I just said that I was like, oh, I love avocado toast. Yeah, it's good. But here's the issue. So, so one of the things that media has not talked about, and I, I, 
media is serving a humongously important role in America today. That's for sure. But one of the criticisms I would have of media is the fact that they are not talking about, okay, so there's income inequality. So as you say, people, you know, the American poor are not the African poor. Right. Although we have too many people, like two, two and a half percent, that, that have an income equivalent to the African poor. Right. But that's not for, I'm talking about the vast majority of America today. So I'm not addressing that as a humanitarian crisis. We've got that too. But I'm talking about the vast majority of America here. And what's going on, the criticism I have, is that people don't understand what's happening the zip codes next to their own zip code, because that's where inequality is. It's not north-south or some region or a few cities or whatever. It's across America in the zip code next door. Just drive from half a mile to a mile and a half, you're likely to run into one of those zip codes. Oh, and absolutely. We're, we're in Philadelphia. It's a city with the pockets yes. of great wealth and you pockets of great... You have it there, yeah. I know. Yeah, and and I'm from Kansas, and like you know, you can drive from Lawrence, Kansas, where my family lives, and you know it feels pretty comfortable. But you don't go too far, and it's not urban poor; it's rural poor. Yeah, yeah. So you can have urban poor, rural, but you have a lot in common. Like the education is horrific, because remember, public education in America is paid by real estate taxes. Right. A lot of people say blame the government. It isn't the government. It's real estate taxes that pay for uh, the, the schools. And when you have no income to buy a lot of nice houses, you have horrible income going to schools. So the, the, the dropout rates out of these terrible schools is close to 60% often enough. And then you have no early education. And now we know if a child is not beginning to be mentored, supported, tutored, whatever, encouraged to learn from the age of three on, uh, the game is almost over by the time you get to first grade. And by the way, there's also no K. Only 22 states in America have kindergartens. In many cases, they're too expensive, so these folks don't have the money to get there. And then you have 55% of the households are run by a single mom who has two jobs to put food on the table. So where's that dinner conversation with the kids to say, hey, how was the day? Are you have a problem with bullies or your peers or this or that? Or how about the morality issues of importance of hard work and ethics and morality and, and, and the sense of citizenship in a country? Peter, Those conversations never take place. Peter, you are, uh, I hate to say it, but I'm, I'm getting really depressed right now. I was already <laughs> depressed because Matt's leaving, and now I'm just crying into my coffee here. So, well, but, but you what see, do you do? With, it is with intent, because we need to understand, you see, we can't just dive to the solutions. We need to understand the depth of the problems. And the folks in Washington, most of them, have no clue. And many of the CEOs don't have a clue about what I we're just talking about because they live in silos. You know, they never venture there. They work almost 24-7, the CEOs do, and they are, you know, strapped into their jobs. They're strapped into the financial community. They're strapped into the, the lifestyles and their kids and making sure they get the tutoring, making sure they go get into the right college, et cetera, supporting the right uh, folks uh, politically that will continue to 
to, let's say, perpetuate the plutocracy. We have a plutocracy here that's working very hard to keep things as they are because life is good. And that, those are the challenges that society today is facing. And we need to understand that in order for us to be willing to say change has to happen. What's going on today is not sustainable. Peter, do you think that there's any element to this? I've been thinking about this recently, um, that a lot of the CEOs of these major corporations, not only are they sort of in their silos, but, you know, they're disconnected from their workforce. You know, if you think Mm -hmm. historically, you know, the CEO of my company lived in my town or at least a town over if it was a big company. Whereas now I'm just thinking of where, you know, my, some of my family works, they, this is not a criticism of the company, just that like Tyson Foods, um, a plant in Emporia, Kansas, where my aunt works, but the CEO does not live in Emporia, Kansas. So how does he or she, I think a he, know what's going, what's on. going on in Emporia, Kansas? Okay. So, all right. So I think this is a good transition to, to the next important point. What has happened what has happened to business? Why is the CEO not concerned about, you know, the person in, in, in next to Lawrence, Kansas? Why are they not? And they're not, by the way. They're not. So let's understand that because between the years 1945 and about 1980, America built the biggest middle class market in the world. The middle class, America's middle class was the biggest market in the world. And, and, you know, it was magical. So free market capitalism can produce amazing stuff. And around the world, it's lifted, you know, hundreds of millions of people out of object poverty, whether it's in China or India, in, in, in other parts of uh, Asia, and so forth, and certainly us. And that's why we are the number one greatest economic and military country in the world. But since ni- from 1980 on, this wonderful machine, wealth-creating machine, something happened to it. And I'll tell you what happened. It got hijacked. Before, you know, a corporation worried about exactly what you said. They worried about their employees. They worried about the corporation itself, which needs to be fed in order to perpetuate itself and to, to stay up to date and become stay competitive. They worried about... Uh, the, the community in which they did business, which is very important. They worried about customers a lot. And if they did that, the, the shareholder would do very well. From 1980 on, a new mantra came in, and that is called shareholder primacy, which means maximizing short-term shareholder value. Now, the employees became a cost. And what do you do as a manager to any cost? You ratchet it down. Mm-hmm. So from basically from 1980 to today, wages other than inflation have not gone up. Fact. So that is part of the big contribution. And the reason the CEO is not concerned about it is because he has to deliver the next quarter's profits. And every quarter the profits must go up or the CEO is in trouble. He's going to get fired if he doesn't deliver that. So they need to have two or three quarters worth of visibility, and where am I going to get those continuous increases? In a market, at least in the United States, that's continuously, let's say, in, in not moribund, but barely thriving at 2%. And the rest of the world, Europe, is in trouble, never mind Britain, 
China is struggling, India has not yet kicked in, and the Abbey Revolution never took off. So it's very hard up there. Yeah, and, and Peter, I, this is, I'm worried that we're going to get run out of the time of the show before we get to the solution. Okay, okay. Enough, <laughs> enough of the problems. <laughs> Help us understand because this. Because I, I think that, you know, the, the question is, you know, now CEOs, you know, if they're, if they're listening to the program, they, 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 hear the, they hear the problem. And now there's this conversation of, you know, the business case to, to address inequality is, is one aspect. And then once we think about that business case, how do we then actually implement it within our own organization? So what, what does that first step look like? The first step is to it's obviously to admit that what we have to do is to change the dynamics, that the real value creators for our business are, is no longer capital, it's employees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the 21st century, only the em- employees produce productivity increases and innovation increases. Okay, so what do you have to do? You have to respect your employees. You have to take good care of them. You have to uh, motivate them to think about your business 24-7, and therefore you have to pay, begin to pay your people well. And what do I mean by a fair pay? Very specifically, not redistribution uh, of wealth, but they should share in the incremental value of productivity and innovation that they produce. That's what fair pay is about, okay? So that's step number one. And they should tell the market, as other corporations, by the way, do, we're not going to give you guidance by quarter. We're going to tell you where we, what our plans are. We're going to give you absolutely critical milestones for you to evaluate us and judge us accordingly. But we're going to do what's in the best interests of the corporation over time. And if you do that, here's the irony and the tragedy at the same time. If you do that, if you pay your people well, if you invest in your companies, seriously invest in your companies, which you do no longer do today to the degree we should, the shareholder does even better. So we're trying to protect this system that's supposed to maximize shareholder value. It does not. And at the same time, is destroying our communities and our society. So that's the charge for business. That's why capitalists must arise and say, look, guys, there's a better way here, a better way for ourselves. This is not just a moral issue. This is a business issue. If you want to really drive economic growth and GDP growth, you've got to put money in the pockets of people who spend, not to give me more tax money. There's only so many glasses of wine I can drink a night and so much avocado toast. A day. <laughs> I, I can't stop the avocado toast. So <laughs> but I'm, I'm 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 curious. You know, when we when you know we're talking about this business case, are there specific um, leaders or examples that jump out to you as saying, you know, this is the proof that yes, this model works. Yes. Okay. So let's talk. And 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 honestly, as you as you know, uh, I, I I love the story of Jim Senegal. Jim Senegal started Costco in 1983. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what did he do right up front? He said, I'm going to double, I'm going to double the salaries or the, the benefits of the folks who work at Walmart, which he did. And the Wall Street Journal came up and said, if you want to drive the benefits to, uh, to the workforce, buy, <clears throat> you know, then you buy their stock. Or don't buy their stock. Short their stock. And if you want to... Uh, as I said, 
if you want to if you want to make money on them short their stock because they're going to go down the tubes the shareholders getting really shortchanged and those were the headlines that poor Jim Senegal uh, had to deal with uh, the reality is that since then he's kept he's always ahead of the marketplace in terms of benefits and compensation for his workers except that he has been compounding at 16.3 percent since 1983 and there are lots of examples private companies do a lot better like Publix for example supermarkets uh, and so forth and so there are many uh, Google doesn't have this kind of problem because they know their workers are everything Who's inno- who, who are the innovators at Google not the Google brothers as I call them not Larry and Sergey <laughs> right it's, it's the all their employees place. who do that yeah. so they know it so there are lots of companies, big and small, across America, and small, small business in America, take good care of their people because they're close to the reality, and they know their people, by the way. The CEO knows their people. They know their contributions, and they take good care of them. So they're more than green shoots. There are a lot of companies in America that know this very well and take good care of their people. We need the culture to change. That's the issue. So, Peter, in, in the sort of like minute remaining of our, our segment, what – how do we start spreading that gospel? Is it is it CEOs talking to other CEOs? Is it media talking to shareholders? Is is it investors like us in our four three Bs, et cetera, sort of saying I'm only going to invest in the companies that are doing well for their employees? What 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 are the levers for making that change happen? Well, I think you said it well. Okay, that's exactly what needs to happen. The <laughs> I'm one so emphasis, smart. the one emphasis other than the obvious, is the equity holders. Mm-hmm. The equity holders have a big role to play. If the CEO were being pressed by the financial community and the, what I call the terrorist activists who go out and do terrible things to companies, if, if the equity holder says, as, as, happened, as it did not happen when American Airlines raised the right. salaries of employees just a few weeks ago and the market went crazy, their stock dropped 7%. Uh, because an analyst said, oh, my goodness, the, uh, the, the, the shareholder is getting screwed again. And instead of that, the equity, the equity holder community should come up and say, wrong. If you want to sell, we buy, because this is in the best interest of American Airlines and any companies that take good care of their people. They're going to do better in the long term, so we're going to buy them. Yeah, and it's uh, and as a last comment before we have to say goodbye to you, if one of our guests years ago said, "Every dollar you spend and invest is a vote for the world you want to create," and so I think yes, that that's exactly. that's part of it. Well, Peter, it's it's been great having you on. I'm I'm so glad we uh, got your your dream fulfilled and that you've been a dollars and change guest. Um, and uh, we we're sort of be watching and listening to you going forward. Good. So, I would like to come back and give you some progress. Okay, we will have we you want there. the progress report, definitely. <laughs> we should bring you to campus. So um, we're going to take a break now. This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. When we return, we'll be talking to Adam Braun, who's the CEO, co-founder of Mission U and the, and the founder of Pencils of Promise. So we'll have a great discussion about uh, changing education. Talk to you soon. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.